Hi, it's Dave. Today I'm joined by James Dama. He is a machine learning enthusiast and a frequent guest on my channel. And today we're going to be talking about Tesla, Tesla FSG, FSD, GPT-4, AGI, and AI safety, some big topics. So uh, James, how are you doing? Great. I'm doing great. It's great good. to see you again. Yeah, it's a good being in Austin. We're back in this uh, yeah. physical studio face-to-face. Um, yeah, so first off, I wanted to get your thoughts on Investor Day. I haven't talked to you in a while. Um, so yeah, it's been quite a yeah while. any kind of big picture thoughts? Um, were you, um, did you have any takeaways from Tesla's Investor Day? Um, it's, what, it's, a there's a ago? lot. Yeah. There's, there's a lot to it. Like, it's hard to summarize what's going on. Just like at the 10,000 foot level, I thought Investor Day was great. I know there were, um, you know, varied expectations on it. Some people expectations weren't fulfilled but for me it was more or less exactly what i wanted to see what they're thinking about meet some more of the team um see more of a structure to the big picture for what they were doing and get a lot of examples of like concrete things that they were doing the um the the overall manufacturing concept for the gen 3 vehicle i was really blown away by that like the 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 modular approach to building vehicles Mm -hmm. is like wow that's a huge departure from you know the practice that's in the automobile business for yeah. so long and um, while i don't know that much about how the yeah. assembly goes it, it like just looking at it from an engineering perspective you can see how there's a lot of potential there for improvement with that like for those who aren't kind of aware of this module per se they're mm-hmm. dividing up the car into uh, five sections or so or kind of four, four i yeah. mean you know, okay. four five six depending whether you count the bottom and whatnot. yeah and then you basically fully assemble each section and at the end you stick them all together yeah so um how much of that do you think is because of humanoid robots like they want you know the humanoid robots to have more access right around that section i could see like i could see that being beneficial for being able to use certainly right mm-hmm. but right now they use humans yeah. you know and as we talked about before the the thing about humanoid robots is they're drop-in replacements for humans i mean the, the form factor the point is you put them in so to a first approximation, if they design a if they design a manufacturing process that's good for humans, then humanoid robots are kind of a, a drop in for that. It's it's different from how uh, you know more conventional manufacturing robotics works because you can there are so many options for how you can build a robot if frequently stationary. Like you 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 have a lot more you in a sense you've got fewer restrictions if you're willing to reconfigure the robot for the job uh, in the but. If you're going to build around humanoid robots, like a good place to start is build around humans. And then maybe, you know, if your robots, it, it, for the foreseeable future, the robots are going to have a lot of weaknesses relative to humans' range of motion, speed of movement, grip strength, lots of things like that. Certainly this kind of tactile feedback thing, like I'll be shocked if they have Optimus installing wiring harnesses because that's just really, really hard to do right now. Um but as far as accessibility, you know, the, the size of things that you can move, I, one, one big difference is robots won't get repetitive motion injuries, <laughs> right? And that's a big constraint on how you can design assembly lines for human beings right now. Um, so you could discard that. But in terms of access and that kind of stuff, I think it's, you know, design it for humans and then the robots drop in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like what other, what kind of other benefits do you see from that modular of assembly and manufacturing approach. Well, I think they explained the benefits pretty well in the slide, although it went pretty fast. But mm-hmm. so currently there's a huge access problem. I mean, there's there's kind of this, uh, you know, they put the body in white altogether to paint it and then they take it apart. And uh, 
so that they can have access because now once you've got the basic body put together, now you have this framework and you have to install everything in the framework. But the, but the body is a shell with openings. So now all of the big components and all the small components, all the operations you do, you have to reach through the holes in the shell to do stuff. Mm -hmm. And that really constrains the operations that you can do. And of course, how quickly you can do stuff. I mean, what you would like to do is take, you know, like the whole dashboard and everything. You want mm -hmm. to assemble as much of it as possible into the biggest possible thing and then slide it in the car once. Mm -hmm. Well, once you cross a certain threshold, it won't go in. And then the need to be able to do that, that constrains how big your doors can be, how big your windows can be, where they are relative to the dash, you know, the alignment of the dash mounting points relative to the openings in the car, like all those become constraints. So this approach where you're going to, we're going to take off the sides of the car, we're going to take the front and the back of the car, and we're going to build the front, we're going to build the back. Now, instead of a shell, it's the opposite. Instead of a convex surface that you're building everything into where you have to reach through holes, it's like arthroscopic surgery being, as opposed to like working on a, a motor on a table or something like that. Now everything's on the open. You're working on the outside of like a concave, uh, convex surface. And you have super easy access to everything, really big tools, tools that are even bigger than the thing that you're working on can get access to every single point on the object. Mm -hmm. So you, so now you've really opened up the space of different ways that you could look at building the front and building the back. And then another thing that they focused on was the floor space question, right? If you have a big hollow shell that's going down an assembly line and you're sticking things inside it, well, your assembly line, it has to be have the space for this big shell. And you may only be working on one little part of it, but you have to dedicate a really large volume at each station to basically holding this big empty shell. So when you flip that around and the, you know, the workstation is much bigger than the object itself because the object's getting, you know, whether it's the front of the car, the back of the car, the side, whatever, it's getting pulled into the workstation. Now your space utilization, you know, on your factory floor is much better. And it's like it's I was I was actually surprised that they only got 40 percent space reduction. Right. Yeah. Like I could easily imagine it being much larger than that. And that's that's probably a testament to how mature the current process is. You know, I mean, they've been yeah. building cars the yeah. way they have for a long time. You would sort of imagine they get the Gen 3 process out. They have their initial thing. And then after they build the first Gen 3 factory, they're going to think of all these clever things that didn't occur to them that now that they're discovering from process flow and whatnot that they could do. And maybe the factory keeps getting smaller and smaller. Yeah. And what's your kind of uh, gut feeling on how far they are with this next gen vehicle? I mean, yeah, that, well, you know, I wasn't seeing, I, I, yeah. I, I so didn't expect this kind of yeah. radical rethink of the yeah. way that cars get built. Like it's, that's one of the things that makes it really exciting because the yeah. possibilities are so large for making improvements. Um, they, they have to have thought a lot about it before, you know, you can imagine the first time somebody suggests this idea, right? Yeah. Because it's such a radical departure. Like everybody who's worked on cars forever has been doing it the old way. There's going to be a huge amount of skepticism. The first thing you're going to see is all the problems with it. Mm -hmm. I would think you'd have to be thinking about this really carefully for like years mm. before it would get to the point where you would say, yeah, that's a good idea. We should do yeah. that. Um, so like on some level, like I don't think this is an idea they had recently. This must be something they've been thinking about for five years. And it's just sort of gotten to a level of maturity that they're like, yeah, we've we've done an initial factory design. Yeah. We've thought through all the really significant things. We don't see any bottlenecks that are going to do it. So like I would guess at that point. But like if you were to tell me, oh, no, they've got the design done. They've built the tooling for most of the production line already, and they're ready to go. And as soon as they get the factory in Mexico up, you know, they're ready to send equipment. Because a lot of the tooling and everything is going to be a lot smaller. It doesn't have to work at car scale now. It can work yeah. at module scale. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, um, 
Yeah, I wonder like how detailed do you think the like this do they have simulations of the, this new factory? Do you think um, before they committed to it, meaning just all the advanced processes? Like, I mean, on a basic level, you'll, you'll have a spreadsheet of like all the processes and how long each thing will take and all converging. But on a more advanced level, you could have some type of visual simulation of the factory, new factory actually moving I'm, I'm sure you know, they have a detailed CAD model of a first mm -hmm. cut at a minimum of what they're doing. I mean, when you build factory tooling, you build CAD models of everything, and then you do these articulation studies where you basically, you you know, you build your tools, you build your workstations and whatnot, and then you move everything to make sure that everything actually fits the way mm -hmm. that, that I, it's, a, it's a pretty important, especially the, the higher density you want to get to, the more sort of movement and spatial constraints you have, and the more important it is to build a really detailed model. And once upon a time, building the models were hard. And these days, building the models, like there's so many tools for rapidly being able to build models like i'd be shocked if they hadn't already built a model and then once you once you've got your workstation models put together you do a factory floor layout then you do a materials flow study you know i mean you can layer all this stuff on relatively quickly to look for bottlenecks and then once you've got the bottlenecks out and you have your first cut now you can start refining and iterating you know it's a floor planning a factory yeah so. yeah interesting yeah i mean it seems like they they purposely obviously didn't talk about the design the the look of the car because it's still a while out they don't mm. want to probably cannibalize their you know model three and Y. but they did go from the other side which is the assembly manufacturing yeah. the how they're going to achieve the cost you know given the choice goals, you know yeah and i know a lot of other yeah. a lot of people feel differently but given the choice between yeah. Hey, here's the car, yeah. or hey, here's how we're going to build the car. Like for me, there's no contest. Exactly. I'm much more excited about hearing how they're going to build the car than the details of like these are the features we're going to put in. This is a price point that we're going for. These are the materials we're going to use. This is the paint. You know, yeah. like I don't. You know, the long run, like one more car model is just one more car model. I mean, it's important yeah. to access a new, uh, a new market segment. You know, be able to get to a price point that significantly increases the amount of volume that they can do. Like all those things are quite important. You know, I'm a technologist, so I have my yeah. own biases. But as an investor, I look at the thing. And the thing that's much more important to me is, is what fundamental improvements are they making? Like what is fundamentally different? If they were, if you know, if showing the Gen 3 uh, concept and not showing the vehicle, like is so much more informative to me yeah. long-term on the potential for the company than seeing, you know, a, a, you know, say a detailed render or even a prototype of a new car that they're going to manufacture in a year. Because, you know, if it's just a smaller car, like yeah. the, the potential for that long term is so much less than, hey, we rethought the factory and we're going to make the factory a lot cheaper. We're going to get the volume way up. And, you know, and, and on top of that, here's the reason to believe we're going to get to this cost point, yeah. right? Because... You know, if you understand manufacturing, if you understand engineering, you can look at this and you can see very easily that this, you know, the potential for that this offers uh, for future vehicles. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I agree. I thought that, you know, my expectations going just before this was that their next generation platform would be this more incremental improvements, mm -hmm. changes, smaller car, just, you know, get it down. But this, the investor day, that whole assembly manufacturing approach they're doing, module, all that stuff, it really is like this, it's a, an aggressive, ambitious approach to completely rethink 
how it's made because there's some really probably super ambitious goals that they're trying to reach. If it was just kind of, you know, a little bit better, a little bit cheaper, whatever process is, then you wouldn't have to completely redesign everything. You just incrementally improve a little bit. But I thought, yeah, it was like extremely bullish in my opinion that that it's a combination of there's a super ambitious goals, but also they've really rethought and came up with some really not just small incremental, but some big, yeah. you know, changes. I, from my perspective, it was so much better than the best thing that I had imagined yeah. that they were going to show us. I was really happy with it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's, it's interesting. I mean, <sighs> but not just. I mean, they the way that 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 all of Investor Day was structured. You know, they they basically let's bring out each of our major groups. Let's give it give each one of them like you know 20, 30 minutes to explain what they're doing. Like I feel like they were generous with their time. But you could also imagine that, you know, what if you had two days or if you had five days or if they brought up 20, you know, you, it could just go indefinitely. I mean, from the perspective of like a public event, it they might have gone long. But I, don't, I also kind of got the impression that these guys, they're all just scraping the surface of what they've actually got going on. You didn't feel like, there it is. That's everything we've been thinking about for the last four years. Just like, yeah, we went through our list of stuff. And we thought that maybe this was the most interesting thing that we could present, you know, and we had a hundred alternatives, but this is what we showed you. Like there's, I get the sense that there's a lot of depth behind what they're showing us. It's, this is not like the whole thing. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, yeah. And the other thing, like a few other things was interesting at the factory tour at Investor Day, they showed like different parts that I thought, um, they're very, they were very cautious for people not to take pictures but they wouldn't even let me take notes like on my phone. They were like, don't put, take, put away your phone. I was like, whoa, man, this is like the most cautious I've seen actually test that effect. But um, like the, the motors and stuff, I felt like they're really trying to prepare for this, like make everything in-house and get the cheapest, like their hairpin motors. And then with um, the batteries, I, I thought this was the thing that they're holding closest to their, their chest or vest or in a way where they showed investors at Investor Day the electrolyte, the dry electrode machines rolling. And the guy presenting or showing it, he seemed to be the head of the whole process. And he's saying like they, they're basically, in his words, rolling 24-7. And there's like almost no you know human involvement in the process. And they've got five machines going and they've got their next generation coming soon. And he just, it really was impressive, just this whole dry electrode and how much factory space they're saving. Um, and I just think that that's a huge part of this next-gen vehicle too, where you have the, you know, this battery factory that's just ridiculously small of a footprint compared to normal modern-day battery factories at a, at a very you know, um, super amazing cost point. And you combine that with these other things of a of the new assembly manufacturing approach, new factory layout and everything. And then you get this, not just a small incremental improvement, but you get a big step change in terms of what you can deliver, you know, for the price point. Um, you know, they're shooting for a point that's five years away, yeah. right? And there's like doing all this work and this manufacturing line and this production capability, it's really going to manifest over several years and and that's when it's really going to pay off and you know between now and then they're going to invest 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 um for a world that consumes like a thousand times as much batteries as we're 
like there that's their picture like what do we do to 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 scale it at a thousand x from from you know where they were a couple of years ago and they're laying the groundwork for that they're not trying to be profitable or they're not trying to you know get factory product fit or factory market fit at each point as they go it's not like no we're trying to fit our factory for that market the market that we see five years ahead yeah at at the end of the event there was like some executives that you could go up to and talk with and um i was i was talking to one executive and they're talking about battery day and how um in i have to be a little bit cautious here but they're saying you know, we, we had a timeline that we shared and it's actually going almost exactly that we're, we're following that timeline. The execution is going very, very well. Even though someone or some people might have thought or, or said it would be faster or it could be whatever, in his opinion or, you know, the timeline they originally had was, you know, the timeline that, that he was confident in. And so it, it just, it gave me this interesting reassurance that, they're really on track with their long-term projections, and um, they're not just throwing out a ten or twenty million, you know, vehicle number out of the hat. They they understand how cheap the vehicle needs to get to reach a certain market, and how compelling the vehicle needs to be as well. And so, and they have this, you know, on all the fronts how to get there, and they're they're, you know, very focused on going with that and it's it's um yeah with batteries with manufacturing and all the machinery that goes along with the manufacturing there's a it's a complex process you know um yeah you've got to in order to compete with that you've got to match tesla at that level of focus and innovation engineering and that's gonna be tough yeah there's not there are no incumbents i mean incumbents are dedicated to trying to minimize the changes to the business model right they've optimized their business for that so you know, they're getting in, they're going to get in, in uh, innovators dilemmaed, right? And, and it's almost unavoidable. And it, and it, strangely, you know, if you read, read Christensen's book on the topic, right, it's actually really hard. It's not that they can't do it because they're dumb or because they're not well-managed or whatnot. It's that they're, they're like in this local, they're like in this local maxima. And, you know, the opportunity to, they have to go so far down the hill in order to get to the next mountain that from an kind of investment business management standpoint, it just doesn't make sense for them to do that. And that's why companies don't cross that, that threshold to the next mountain. They, you know, they die and something else happens. So, and that's, that's just what's going to happen. You touched on something, which I think is super important to like keep in mind for us outside of Tesla who are thinking, trying to understand what the company is doing is that especially around companies like Tesla, where you've got so much chatter going on outside, there are narratives that just get going and they take on a life of their own and they can be completely false, but they get repeated enough and whatnot. So for instance, the notion that, that, that the 4680 or that the dry battery electric process isn't going well and it's, and it's behind schedule and they're having to do all these other things to adjust it, you know. And, uh, you know, once you hear that narrative, you start seeing confirmations and all the little decisions the company makes, like they're not saying this, they're not saying that, this must be why. And there's just more and more of that confirmation bias over time because outside, so little information comes out about this process that, you you know, <clears throat> the outside world becomes utterly convinced of something which is completely false because of that feedback loop. 
but we're probably more wrong than we are right when we try to read these things externally. Yeah, I, I had this thought of just talking about chatter or um, around, let's say, you know, Tesla's products or timelines. I, I think there's something about human nature where we tend to lean on hope or fear, like where we think it's, oh no, Tesla's sandbagging everything. It's going to be much better than expected. Or it's like this fear. It's like, oh my gosh, like, you know, it's like way behind. And um, I think there's something where there's a natural just um, leaning on one side or the other. Um, so I, I, I see that often. And um, yeah, it's too, it's kind of too bad. I mean, ha luckily, we have different points of view to try to bring us back to it. So you can't get too far down your road. I mean, assuming that you're not totally locking yourself in a bubble, there will be somebody outside who will point out the obvious flaws <laughs> in your fantasy of doom or ecstasy or, you know, whatever is going on, thankfully. Yeah. Um, yeah, interesting stuff. Um, what do you think about uh, this next-gen vehicle paint? Do you think it's going to be just traditional paint or do you think it's going to be stainless? I think the idea, well, so there's, you know, if you th you think about some of the constraints that the new process introduces, right? I mean, one of the reasons that they assemble the body in white and paint it and then disassemble it. I mean, there are a couple of things. One is it's made out of stamped steel, <clears throat> which is su subject to corrosion. Like they pick a, they pick a metal, not for its corrosion properties, but for, you know, it's, uh, structural properties and its ability to, you know, do uh, welds and uh, use fasteners and that kind of stuff. <clears throat> and then, so by decoupling, you know, for regular steel, by decoupling the material choice from <clears throat> the need for, excuse me, from the need for corrosion resistance, you solve corrosion resistance with paint after the fact. <clears throat> so if they go with stainless, and they could do stamped stainless. You can do that just by going thinner. Like you don't have to do Cybertruck stainless. But if they go with stainless, they free the vehicle from those constraints where we have to paint all of the metal because you've got to have corrosion resistance long term or it has to be treated somehow. So like if they decide to go with stainless steel, that does give them more options because they don't have to do the, you know, the dipping, the treating, the painting all as a single body. And then if you paint it, you want to put the whole thing together because it's so hard to match paint like really, really well. Like if the door is the slightest, slightest tint different than the surrounding body, like it'll really pop out to your eye in bright light. And that's why they have to put the whole car together and then paint it as a unit and then uh, disassemble it. If you try to paint the door separately, you're definitely going to run into that. So what if you, you don't paint the doors, right? Well, that's, that's an obvious fix for that kind of stuff. So stainless steel definitely enables this, it seems to me, you know, going with stainless steel. And uh, for color, I mean, people have talked about, well, maybe wraps, maybe a factory wrap is an option, or maybe they do uh, stainless. That, um, so like, I, I find that that's really interesting. I, I haven't spent a lot of time, I did, I did go look at whether you could stamp stainless and like what some of the constraints were. And there are, there are things like texturing the metal, which are kind of an, in, of, of an issue. And then stainless steel, it can become less stainless depending on the blend that you use after you form it or heat it or, you know, some of the some of the things that you might do to build a body out of stainless in a conventional way like that could have. So I don't know all the details on that and the details really matter. But the idea that it could be stainless, I think, is really interesting. And that would be another big. I, uh, apparently, the DeLorean was stamped stainless. So there's at least one existing existence proof that, that you can get away with that. So I like that idea. And I, 
you know, that it's compelling enough that I have a hard time now getting back to the idea, you know, I'm getting in my little loop of like, that. Yeah, that's great. They must be doing that. Yeah. I, mean, I would love to see some like stainless steel just because if you can get rid of the paint shop and all that, that'd be amazing. Um, it just takes up so much time and just, it's, and you know, it, it it's the most expensive part of the factory I've heard. Um, and one of the biggest parts of the factory, it really takes up a lot of space. It's a huge constraint because, you know, you have to wait for the paints to cure, you have to bake them. And then it's a huge QA like overhead because there's so much, so much of the inspection process is making sure you got the paint right and aren't any dings. And you can imagine also as a QA thing at the tail end, right? That paint defects, that's gotta be one of the number one, you know, delivery day complaints that they ha that they get and that they have to deal with. So maybe customer satisfaction goes up and maybe the amount of like touch-up work or rework or whatever that you have to do at the tail end, maybe that comes way down too. So it seems like there's, you know, but at the end of the day, can you do it with the materials? Is it, it would, are the materials cost effective? Do you get the structural targets that you need? I don't know the answer to that. I mean, my big question mark would be stainless steel. Is that look going to be mass appeal for 10 or 20 million vehicle, you know, that level because there seems to be a precedent for, you know, this certain shape and look of cars painted, you know, rounded. Um, Utility, you know, it has a beauty all its own, <laughs> right? So, like, knowing that your paint isn't going to get scratched and you don't have to worry about door dings and, or less. Um, knowing, uh, you, you know, if the wrap thing ends up, working like I, I don't know a lot about wraps I know good wraps are relatively expensive and that you know to really do a good wrap you you know you kind of had to disassemble the car I, I was wondering like how would you change the design of a car if you were going to design it for wrapping and um, if you were to automate wrapping you know like in a factory could you do it a lot better would it be faster um, those are all really interesting questions but like wraps that's an interesting potential for you know, having a stainless car and then also having, uh, you know, some variants on on it that you can do. Because, you know, imagine the base, you know, if the stainless car is is $3,000, $4,000 less than a wrapped car, well, that's another kind of way you can get to an even lower price point and still have some product differentiation so you have some markup on your colored vehicles, right? That's true, yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah, that's not bad. I mean, it'd be easier to do that than having, like, two separate models, like a stainless steel and a painted model, Um yeah, that seems more complex, but yeah, we'll see. Um, yeah, interesting. Um, so recently, Tesla's been doing a bunch of price cuts on their vehicles. Um, what's your thoughts? Um, there's people who are clamoring, saying that Tesla should advertise instead of cutting their prices. Um, do you have any kind of thoughts or, you know, swayed in any direction? Uh, so... I don't, they, you know, Tesla's got insane amounts of information. They, they have more information than OEMs tend to have, right? Because they have all the way down to the customer interface. Um, I think they probably understand their business really well. Um, you know, what it takes to incentivize people to buy cars and, uh, you know, where they're doing well, where they're not doing well, what people do and don't understand. I don't think they have perfect knowledge, but I think as the car business goes, they're probably pretty well informed and uh externally like i i haven't seen sources of information which i think remotely rival the information that tesla has to work from in making these kinds of decisions so i'm super reluctant to second guess them um 
the I don't I it, I I understand the you know from the short, uh, kind of a shorter term investment standpoint how you might want to see them keep their margins up and you might think well you know if they advertise to push up demand you know they can't make any they can't sell any more cars than they can make they're selling all the cars that they do make so they won't sell more cars we could sell them at a higher price do you get the money back from advertising i don't really know like i i did a quick cut at like what it costs to advertise cars enough to make a difference in sales and my general sense is that you know there's a decent chance it turns out to be a wash you know, and it might be negative, it might be positive, but I didn't see when I did a quick, you know, kind of napkin analysis of it, that there was a clear win there, that you definitely would increase profitability of the of the company by going with advertising and trying to keep prices high. Also, um, you know, looking at the longer term arc of the business, I mean, like the model I built of Tesla in my 10-year model that I built a couple of years back, it actually had the cars getting crazy, crazy cheap over time. Like there's this, well, first of all, you have to get really cheap. I mean, you've, you've, you know, the, the curves of market penetration by price or the, you know, market, the TAM by vehicle price variation, it pretty clearly shows that the bread and butter of like the model, the, even the lower end three and Y they're above the meat of that. Like there's so much TAM that you can get to, you can get the price down. They have to get the prices down. They have to come down. Um, do you get down there by like keeping the price on the three and the Y and coming out with a new vehicle? I think a lot of uh, commentary has been from people who think that that's the right path forward for the company. Like keep the three Y, try to keep the margins high and that kind of stuff. If you want a lower price point vehicle, come out with one, get differentiation. It's a pretty classic view. There's a lot of data to support that. But uh, I like the disruptive thing. Like, no, 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 we're going to make all the cars cheaper. I mean, electric vehicles, they're just going to be better. They're going to be cheaper. And the margin's going to be high because the technology is fundamentally better. Um, we, uh, like, I can see the argument both ways, but uh, personally, I'm a fan of driving the prices down. I, I think if, like, I'm super happy to see them maintain 15 or 20% margins on the cars and grow as fast as they can, like, if that's the trade-off. If it went lower, like... I, I mean, I, I feel like if if they had to go down to like super skinny margins in order to maintain their growth rate, I would still do that. Like, because I think growth is way more important than profitability at this point, especially because they've got such a good cash cushion. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, also with FSD, if that becomes a reality with RoboTaxi, that's going to add to margins. So that's on top of just, yeah. you know, the hard work. No, it's, you could sell the cars at a loss. I mean, seriously, it. It, if we see FSD in a robo taxi form come to market in the next few years, you give the cars away because their car is going to be a rounding error on the value of FSD. Yeah, I think with me with advertise or the price cuts and advertising, I I lean on just um, with price cuts to drive demand over advertising um, if you're able to do it um, and you have the margins to support it. Um, I think. Yeah, I, I tend to just give the benefit of doubt to Tesla management on this issue. I think they know what they're doing. Um, I also think there's this hidden value that if you let in advertising and you start to use it, you could start to, it could be like advertising creep where you start to use it more and more and more. And now it's this balanced thing of how do you drive demand? Oh, you innovate and you advertise. And it's this two thing. 
I think right now with Elon's kind of focus, if you kind of kick out advertising, you say, we're going to drive down the price purely off of innovation. We have to engineer our way through this. It's this forced focus where it's, it's um, it can have some very, I think, um, intangible benefits where the entire culture is really like sink or swim. This We're going to make this happen. Um, I think once you start to bring in more and more advertising, it could be, I don't know, longer term, there's, a, there's risk of perhaps becoming a little bit less hardcore innovation is the only thing that's going to drive our company forward. Um, but I actually think, though, <laughs> that said, I think advertising in smart ways is smart. Like for example, I think the first, I don't know how many millions you spend, maybe 10, 20, 50, 100, I don't know what that is per quarter or year, you're going to have a huge return on your investment because it's like, it's this. Right. Like most things. Yeah. Right? The low hanging exactly. fruit is in the early investment. Yeah. Yeah. I think some of the things you could advertise is, for example, the charging network, the supercharging network, also the battery longevity, um, all this stuff where there's a big still perhaps bias or concern of people who who don't buy a car. Because, for example, my neighbor, he looked at me the other day and he's like, oh, you guys have two Teslas. I'm like, yeah, we've had it for a while. And he's like, how do you get by? with two? You know, it's like he's so shocked because he thinks you need a IC car as a backup or something. And that is, I'm like, yeah, we get by fine. You know, it's like all our local driving is done and there's tons of superchargers. I mean, you take a trip, there's like no problem at all. But in his mind, it's inconceivable. But if you can address that, the charging issue, local and travel, superchargers, all that, ba battery longevity with education, I think you get a big bang for your buck with that. And but it is essentially going to be like, let's try to, let's, let's try to increase demand so that the lead times get longer and the prices go up. Like that's a trade-off, right? Because it's not like, oh, we got more demand. We can build another factory. They're already building factories as fast as they can. Well, I, I think the reason or the, the rationale is at least keep the prices not to sink so fast, so quickly. You know what I'm saying? Like if, if you're having to decrease the prices continuously to drive demand, at least maybe you can decrease it less drastically because demand is being you know supported by some advertising, or I would call it more educational advertising, you know, and focus on specific Once issues. again, the trade-off is short-term profitability, right? It's like this quarter, next quarter, we make a few more bucks than we would have made otherwise because we do this thing where we change the philosophy of the company and, right? Um, yeah, I mean, the thing is, I think with educational advertising, like charging, it could be a long-term thing too because you're like, in order to have adoption long term people's minds have to, people have to understand what th this is and how to use it and what the benefits are um so i mean i think to date tesla has relied on more word of mouth and the cars i mean the cars driving on the streets themselves that's a huge advertising impact because you're constantly seeing these cars on the road reminding of them you see your friends driving them and then your friends can tell you but then there's a certain limit where perhaps out in certain circles, you don't have a lot of people who are driving Teslas, you know, in certain neighborhoods or, you know, places or, or types of people. And so, yeah, to reach those people just purely word of mouth, yeah, it could well, be. Making the cars cheaper gets yeah. you into new places you weren't. There's also, I mean, when you look at all of the sort of uh, false 
understandings that people have that might hold people back from thinking, you know, the, there's all the classic EV ones. But there are some that just surround Tesla also, which is like they're super expensive. Like that's still a huge chunk of the population thinks they're. Uh, and for in people who actually have been in the EV buying space, one of the myths about Tesla is, well, it's really long lead time. If I want, my choice is I can go get a Chevy Bolt off the dealer lot or I can wait four months to get my Tesla or whatnot. You keep the prices high and you keep the lead times long. Well, you're more and more entrenching those perspectives that it's an expensive, hard to get car. And at some point that hurts you, right? You want, because you do want that to change. I mean, there, there, there's, there's a certain sort of market penetration you get to where, you know, you, you want the people who want to walk into a dealer, drive the car around a little bit and then put the money down and, you know, walk out with their car. Like that's a segment of the market that Tesla doesn't really get right now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So moving on to FSD. So the big news, which I haven't even talked to you about since it happened, which is hardware four um, going into the cars. Um, we were hoping that it would be retrofitable, but now we're, it appears that it's not going to be retrofitable. It doesn't look to me. Yeah. So um, what's going to happen? You think? It's, uh, you know, just speaking broadly, <clears throat> they could decide to make a version of hardware for that was retrofitable. I mean, it's mainly a silicon change. When I got to see, you know, I, I saw Green the Only posted some photos and I looked at those and I pulled some chip numbers off to, because I was really curious about what we can, what we can learn about what's going on. The, the, the FSD sock itself has changed. It's a bigger package and there's twice as many DRAM chips and they've gone from a relatively power efficient low low speed DRAM to it, like the fastest DRAM that you can get in a cost effective thing, and they've doubled the the memory width. So, my my back of the napkin on this is the they've increased the memory bandwidth by six and a half times, and this significantly increases the power draw that the module needs. So I think that you know probably the dominant reason why it's not retrofitable is they decided to go to a much faster memory architecture, which caused the power envelope to go up and the amount of power that you can deliver uh, in the uh, existing vehicle just isn't enough for the architecture that they wanted to hit a target spec. Um, if they decided that they really wanted to make a retrofitable version, they could spin another version of the silicon, change the memory footprint and get kind of an intermediate thing. So, it's not like the ship has sailed on hardware four and that there's no possibility for a hardware three improvement. They could do another one. It wouldn't be that big a deal. They've got millions of cars out there. Like there's like 2 million cars that could bear upgrading. Uh, and that might be something that makes sense for them. I was kind of surprised that they decided not to uh, have hardware four be upgradable. On the other hand, you know, if you really think hardware three is good enough, you don't need to upgrade it. It's expensive, it's complicated, it's inconvenient for the users. The better thing is to just deliver software that works on hardware three. I mean, that's the win-win. And if they're pretty confident they can do that, then hardware four doesn't solve any problems for them, right? Um, you know, we talked before, the silicon's gonna keep getting better. It just is. The, the hardware is just gonna get better. We're gonna know more about it. So it's gonna get cheaper and cheaper to make better and better platforms. So yeah, just like everything else, you know, why wouldn't you make a better version three years down the road, four years down the road? Cause you can do that and save money at the same time. Uh, so there, you know, that was inevitably going to happen. The presumption that they would make it backward uh, compatible, I think for me uh, was a component of, uh, a big component of that was thinking, well, you know, more compute is always useful. I mean, you can always produce a better experience with more compute. 
But there's this other sort of component of it that I wasn't thinking about, which is like, once you've got enough hardware in there to deliver what you need to deliver for the audience that you want to go to, then anything else that you do is, it's just gravy. It's not necessarily creating value for that. So maybe that's where we are. And, you know, as I mentioned at the start of that, you know, if they decided that they really needed a hardware upgrade, they can, you know, they could probably quadruple and stay inside the same power envelope if they decide they want to do that. So you're thinking if they need, if the two million or so existing vehicles needed an upgrade, they could make a separate. They could build a separate container. They could, they could do, I mean, you can repackage the silicon and instead of having two banks of that memory, you go to one bank. Instead of doubling the memory bandwidth, the memory width, the, you could put half of it in and you could significantly bring the power envelope down. So I think they're going to, you know, hardware four is, I think, I would, I mean, just based on the memory bandwidth, it would be a six, six and a half X speed up if that was the only thing going on. But if they're taking any, if they're taking advantage of any architectural improvements on top of that, it's probably 10, might be 20. So it seemed like they decided that for the next one, you know, if we're going to have a, if we're going to do another uh, hardware design, let's just go long. Let's go for like overwhelming, huge, huge amounts of compute power. I mean, if they did um, a separate retrofitable, you know, hardware for type of, you know, thing, but it had less, let's say, memory and less power draw, would they have to have two separate neural nets they deployed basically on these on these two versions of But they already the hardware. do different versions for different vehicles. So, I mean, it seems like the longer term, that's like a headache, you know, to have to maintain and push yeah. forward. But I mean, it's not as big a headache as being unable to fulfill the promise you made to two million buyers, right? That's true. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I think that's an issue, you know? I mean, because you bought FSD saying like with this promise or this expectation that, that the feature will be complete, you know? Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's a tough one. <laughs> yeah, I I thought you were going to lead off with uh, FSD 11, which is yeah. I, I, actually seeing FSD V11 on the car now. Uh, it you know it make it. It's a really significant improvement. I've been really happy with it. Yeah, actually, I wanted to ask what with FSD 11. What are the main kind of improvements or things you've well, let me tie it back to the other point before we move on to it and that is like you know i look at that and i see progress i see really solid progress toward delivering you know robotaxi capable level of fsd on the existing vehicles on hardware three and so you know it gives me confidence that they're going to get there on hardware three and so that other that initial interpretation that yeah probably don't need it hardware four like this is i mean it's hard to see it as a bullish sign because this is one of those narratives that that we outside had gotten into, like hardware four, you know, we'll, we'll go from three to four to five, all the cars will get upgraded. And it didn't go that way. And now it's like, you know, the external, our external take on it is, oh, is something wrong? You know? Um, and, uh, but you can read this exactly the opposite. You can say, wow, things are going great. No more hardware upgrades are ever going to be needed. They're super confident. And that's why with hardware four, they're just going someplace else because hardware three is done. Um, FSD 11. Yeah, I'm super happy with I, that's that. A, it's an interesting thing. I mean, that's an interesting point because, you know, you assume people, most people would, would assume FSD is a software problem, but also a hardware you know, component. And they play like major components. But if you make more of the assumption that it's, it's largely and mostly like 
predominantly a software issue. That if you can solve the software issue um, in an exceedingly, you know, well, great manner, it can run on probably hardware that's you know less. As the software gets better and better, the so I mean, right now the easiest way to make progress is you get a faster computer and you just make the neural networks bigger and you train on more data or whatever the deal is. But long term, like as the technique continues to get better, like delivering FSD, delivering a full robotaxi FSD, the requirements are going to go down, right? Like as it gets mature, like hardware through will be plenty. That I had said before that, you know, the previous GPU that they had, which is like five or 10x less capable than hardware three, like at some point FSD will run on that and it will work, right? Like whether there will be enough of those cars to make it worthwhile and they'll still be on the road and that kind of stuff. And, you know, that those are all open questions. But as the technology gets good, the hardware requirements go down to, for, to deliver a particular set of function that might be that our standards will go up, right? I mean, once you really start getting robotaxis out there, we may find that society's tolerance for accidents goes way down. You know, after, air, you know, we have very low tolerance for airline accidents. But, you know, 100 years ago, we had really high tolerance for airline accidents because it was just part of flying in airplanes was that they fell out of the sky sometimes. So uh, right now we're super tolerant of car accidents and there's so many problems that we get really wound up about that don't involve killing 40,000 and wounding like a million people in the United States every year. Uh, but we just ignore it. And it could be that once those numbers start going down, we start to, you know, it sinks in like how horrifying this, this thing is that, we, that we've all gotten used to. And then if our tolerance goes down, it might be that any car that's not incredibly safe is something the public just doesn't want to have on the road. Yeah, I mean, it's in, like when you compare it to like large language models, um, like I did this one interview with this guy who took Facebook's llama model and GPT yeah, GPT-4 put it, you know, on your MacBook Air. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as these models, like for example, let's say GPT, let's say 3.5, it's it, it can't run on a MacBook Air because it's, it just isn't, it's a large model. It's just not, you know, if as efficiently does, yeah, exactly, efficiently designed. Like in the future, like a model like that probably could run on a laptop, if because there's so much inefficiency in terms of the size and you know, of like it's just um, these models are huge and they don't necessarily have to be huge if you if we figure out what's that, really that's a that's a seven billion parameter model that's. It delivered in a 4.2 gigabyte file, right? So it's quantized down to four bits, and it's running on a CPU. Like yeah. you know, this this is based on uh, I'll butcher the guy's name, Georgi Garaganov. It's like this alpha hacker went out and he wrote a bunch of a bunch of optimizers to basically so you could squeeze these LLMs down and you could run them on you know these various platforms, including CPUs, like you can get a CPU version of this. And so it runs in a tiny fraction of the memory it was designed to run on. And it runs in a tiny fraction of the compute power it was designed to run because somebody sat down and optimized it. And that's kind of where we are. I mean, there's been so much focus on raising the level of capability uh, and getting them to run efficiently on large data centers, like training efficiency has gotten a significant amount of attention. But this inference efficiency that you get, like when you run your laptop, it's really got, relatively speaking, very little attention. So there's a lot of low-hanging fruit there, and these things can be significant. And the other thing is, 
I mean, a lot of these models that are getting trained right now, they're getting what are called chinchilla optimized, which is that they're designed to give you the most performance for your training budget. But of course, when you look at the whole life, life, you know, uh, life cycle of a model, you running it in the field is way more important than how much it costs. Like if, if, if you double your training cost, but you have your inference cost for most applications, that's a huge win. So the thing is the, the chinchilla, the, you know, the chinchilla optimized, you know, the inference version of chinchilla optimal, those models are much smaller because um, you do things like distillation, you do quanti uh, quantization on them. You, there's, there are all of these techniques that we know that work that can make inference run in a small fraction of the resources that these models take just the research models or the, you know, the first cut models. Um, OpenAI is probably doing that with ChatGPT because they're trying to scale it up. But at the same time, you know, uh, we, we have hints that they put a thou maybe a thousand times as much training into ChatGPT as they put into uh, the GPT-3 models, or sorry, GPT-4 into the GPT-3 models. And that's expensive today, right? So to some extent, they have to optimize for training because training is still so expensive. But as they scale the market, you know, as they get more and more users on this stuff, that, that calculus changes and they'll start working harder on that. And the, the footprint required to run these things will come down. So yeah, chat GPT-3, uh, GPT-3, chat GPT-3.5 equivalent models running on laptops. Like that's not, like that is totally feasible. That could totally, and, and Apple could go out and decide they just want to put a bigger neural engine in that. Cause they only put, they, I think they're running five, 11 teraflops right now. But that that was just you know you look at the at the silicon map for the IC and they're not actually dedicating that much you know that's just where they thought ah oh, that's the most we need right now they could do much better if they wanted to yeah I mean all of this tying back to hardware fours it's what do you think is, is it a possibility like um, Tesla on their newest hardware four they release their latest you know versions that require all that but six to twelve months later they can release on let's say that this modified hardware for for retrofitted vehicles they can release a smaller you know more efficient model that's almost the same capabilities as the, the slightly larger model onto these retrofitable hardware four cars and so then at least you have some you know you bring these older cars i mean to, you know there's good reason to continue improving the hardware three versions of the neural networks and and uh, you know, as FSD was developing, AP actually kept getting better, uh, even though you could argue AP was good enough a while back. They learned things and, you know, they developed, they built tools and whatnot that were helping a lot with um, the FSD implementations. They would fold that back into AP and AP would get better, too, because, you know, by pushing the the the. Uh, by pushing the limit on one system, they learn stuff that basically makes it very low cost to significantly improve the non-bleeding edge system. So, you know, AP, which wasn't the bleeding edge, uh, you know, version of the of the self-driving software that that um, that Tesla had, it continues to improve, and and a significant amount of that is coming from the fact that they're pushing really hard on. So I would, you would likely see something like if they build bigger neural, if they can build and deploy much bigger neural networks on hardware four that are much more resource intensive and get them out into the field, they will learn things that are relevant to making the hardware three. So you're going to continue to see the networks on hardware three getting better and better. 
you know, after Hardware 4 comes out. And maybe in large part because Hardware 4 is enabling them to do things, to learn things at scale in the field that they wouldn't have learned on Hardware 3 because it has reduced um, edge capabilities. Got it. When do you think... Um... <laughs> when do you think we, um, if someone wants to test out the latest and the greatest FSD? Um, when would you get the hardware four car? Yeah, yeah I've been thinking I, about this myself. I, I'd be right around the time I get my Cybertruck, <laughs> which is probably like two years from now. Really? Yeah. I'm thinking it's going to take a while before they can, re they will release stuff that, you know, needs this hardware four over the hardware three. It's not going to be, you know, quick. When Hardware 3 came out, it was a good year plus, maybe 18 months after it came out, before it was no, before it was an improvement over the Hardware 2.5 cars. Yeah, maybe two years. I mean, it, it took a while for that to happen. And I wouldn't, I mean, it'll probably be faster with Hardware 4 because, you know, they've got so much more infrastructure for doing this and because a lot of the underlying, you know, structure of the way that they approach a problem doesn't need to change. Uh but yeah, I would expect, you know, it'll be a year or more before, and I'm just guessing, obviously, because it's possible they've been working on this in the back room for three years, and it's almost ready to go. But that wouldn't be Tesla style, yeah. <laughs> right? You know, I'm expecting, like, it'll be a year before the hardware four cars catch up to the hardware three cars. Huh, interesting. Um, so with the current hardware four cars, are they, I guess, they're just, right. Is it, are they running the same exact kind of neural nets, or is it different... I haven't looked at them. I don't really know. It's, uh, you know, I chatted with Green a little bit about this, trying to get some insight into what might be going on. And there's just, it seems like the general compute, you know, infrastructure is pretty similar. They didn't do a radical departure, but they, they have probably, like I would guess they added more instructions to the neural engine that they didn't have before. They might have support for various techniques for, you know, getting more for less in there. Maybe they have four-bit quantization, like that would be a big win. We now know, we didn't know at the time that they were doing Hardware 3 that four-bit quantization would be a big win. But right now it looks like it is a real significant. So like if you're building a chip today, you would put support for that in for sure. Um, there are other things that they could have rolled in. They might have made the multipliers bigger. There's all kinds of things that they could be doing. Um, but we just don't have much insight into what's going on in there right now. Yeah, interesting. Actually, tangent on apple because we talked about macbook a bit um do you think they're getting close to releasing something like maybe a wwc like uh like on device llm like that you could interact with yeah. that that gpt for all type stuff like people make versions of that that run on iphones now yeah. it's a the the neural uh, coprocessor that they have in the macbook m1 that the that like when you were running GPT for all, if you were running the M1 version of it, like it runs, it's doing most of the inference on that neural processor. Well, that neural processor is exactly the same neural processor they have in the phones. And so like if you look at the hackers who are like making the small versions of the model and tweaking them, they very frequently, you know, will take the model right off of the laptop and then, you know, you do some tweaks and you run it on the phone and it runs fine. I mean, in fact, uh, I think uh, somebody took, you know, Georgie's, uh, uh, like a first cut at that and put it on their phone and it was running faster than it was on their MacBook Air. And they're like, why is the latency on the phones, you know, shorter than the, but yeah, so it, it uh, they already have good support for 
doing stuff at the scale of the models that's out there. Could it get better? It could. The latency is still, like I think if you want to run like that GPT-4 all equivalent model on your phone, it has a latency of like 700 milliseconds or something like that. So that's pretty slow for like if you're putting a lot, because that's 700 milliseconds per token, right? But um, so they could decide that they want to scale that up and run LLMs on the phone. I wouldn't be surprised if we see them running language models on the phone really soon because... I mean, that seems like a, a huge uh, jump forward for AI once you have these large language models on your phone um, and just improving very, very fast every year. I think it's going to surprise The landscape is changing so fast right now that if you're talking about like making a commitment to like changing a chip architecture or something like that, you'd be pretty nervous about like trying to do anything that was specific to the LLM thing because it could really change a lot in the next six months. And we're likely to see more shocking developments. And we're not going to see less. We're going to see more shocking developments. People are just starting to get around to applying these LLMs in novel ways. Because that, that whole, you know, you talk to the LLM, you prompt it, and it gives you something back. I mean, obviously, plugging LLMs into, you know, like the Wolfram Alpha thing where you have a plug-in on the back end, or building an app on the front end that uses the LLM as a back end to do something, which is what Copilot, you know, Copilot is doing at GitHub. But there's so many. I mean, like there's an uncountable number of things you could do with them in two weeks, in four weeks, in six weeks to do that. And so some space of those is going to get implemented and we're going to learn things. So people are starting to do stuff where they have LLMs use other LLMs and talk back and forth between multiple LLMs. Or they have, you know, you do multiple cycles of the thing where, you know, you you have a process, you want to do planning, so you run the planning through the LLM and then you take that and you break that down and then uh, then you you have the LLM, you know, provide suggestions for each of the, you know, they, you can decompose problems with some existence from external heuristic software and use an LLM as a utility. And there's so many possibilities in there. It's just nutty. And people have barely started looking at those. So we're going to see so much creative use of these things over the next six months. And then, you know, so a year from now, what Apple would see as the potential for applying these things in the phone um, is the landscape is going to look different than it is today. It'll be a large superset. So like everything that they that seems like an opportunity today. Well, that'll still be an opportunity in a year, but there may be other even more appealing opportunities a year from now that you maybe want to put your resources into. Interesting. Like some exam- Like what are some examples of these possible yeah. opportunities? It, I, I mean, it's been interesting to watch them, you know, creative use of the LLMs, but a thing that's going to happen for sure over the next year is we're going to see people start going multimodal. Like language models have been trained mainly on language. GPT-4... They have images as an alternative input. Um, but there are a lot of other things that could potentially be inputs in to these things. P- We've only really started looking at that. There's, I think most people expect that, that the capability and the efficiency of these models is going to significantly improve when we get multiple, but we don't know exactly what that's going to be. When GPT-3 came out and we got zero-shot learning, like that was a surprise. It was this emergent property. Um, the uh, you know RLHF on ChatGPT three. It's an interesting observation about ChatGPT three is it's not actually more capable than GPT three is. Like all the core capabilities are basically the same. It's just that they figured out how to get it to cooperate with you, because if if it's just like complete my sentence, right? You got to figure out. You know you have to have these pretty elaborate preambles to get just the kind of 
you know, completion that you want. You can, there's a lot of clever tricks that you can do, but you don't get the level of, you know, anybody can use it sort of amazing functionality that you get with chat GPT three until you teach it about instructions, which is what instruct GPT did. And that's what the, what the uh, fine tuning phase of chat GPT does. And until you get it, give it a sense of what kind of, what does a human want to hear? <laughs> and that's what the RLHF. So it's shocking how much improvement they got in the behavior of the language model because, because the language model's core capabilities didn't change. You just changed its biases, essentially. And that's what they did with that. And GPT-4, it does have significantly extended capabilities compared to the, and I think we're just, you know, everybody's rate limited on being able to use GPT-4 right now. So nobody's doing these huge experiments that the way you can do with GPT-3.5 right now. I think we're, you know, there's a lot of potential just in pushing that forward. It's going to be really interesting when we start getting to use images. Because that whole thing about like, you know, you take a picture of a tax form and you're like, fill this out for me. Or you take a picture, you know, like any form you can take a photograph of, you can feed into and you can get a textual, you know, there's so much uh, paperwork type stuff in the world, which has been resistant to getting transitioned to digital and all of that. I mean, you know, it remains to be seen because no, all, very few people have access to this, but that looks like a capability that GPT-4 is very, it's just right on the threshold of like zero shot automating all of the paperwork in the world, like introducing it. Like that's so big. Right. And, and it's, and it's one of like a thousand things that could anyway, multimodal. Yeah. So Palm, the Palm 562 model that Google did where they, you know, essentially they took a vision model bit 22 and they plugged it into their Palm, their existing Palm model. And they're like, now let's have it drive a robot. <laughs> right. Like, like it's, it's, uh, I mean, from the researcher standpoint, maybe it's not so shocking. The thing is, it freak, it works, right? They they were totally able to abstract the planning function of the robot. And the planning for robots is hard in the real world, right? But they got vision, they got the planning, kind of, they got a certain amount of real world understanding and planning capability that they just got from the language model. Because apparently language models learn that if they learn enough of this stuff. So a whole, a, a whole space of really difficult robotics problems just got abstracted away by the language model. Right. And there are probably a lot more of those out there that we just haven't found yet. I don't know. It, I'm speaking in the abstract. It's hard to come up with concrete things because the space is so large. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you talked about a lot of interesting things here. So, um, yeah, multimodal like LLMs, it just seems like that's going to extend the capability of these LLMs tremendously. And like, because right now, what we're doing was just typing in text. Like, that's just. We're gonna look at that as just so I won't say so archaic, but it's just gonna be it's the way we interact with these LLMs are gonna be completely transformed. Voice is a perfectly reasonable input to an LLM, and we t we train them on text models right now. But there's lots and lots and lots of audio in the world, right? Yeah. And like you can just take audio and plug it into the model and do really similar things with uh, with um, I mean the right way to do it today is to make a multimodal model that takes voice input or sound input in addition to text like you cross those two over and now you've got a you, now you've got a speech uh, you're an LLM a sequence we call them language models because we you know we trained them on language but the architecture is much more general than that we learned when we put started putting pictures into it and when we started asking it to like drive our robots around right uh, we discovered that it's not just language like this architecture works. We just, we call them language models because we started with language. 
But putting voice in, voice is another kind of language, but there's so much more information that comes in in voice. I mean, in the, in the real world, language is a voice phenomenon, right? Intonation, pacing, there's so much more information in voice than is in the text we transcribe it to, which is one of the reasons why text speech is so much more flowery. You're trying to make up for everything you lose when you come away from the audio. Well, give the machine the audio now. Like, you know, GPT-3, it really struggles to know what words rhyme because in English, you know, it's not a phonetic. But, you know, you give it voice, it's super obvious, right? All kinds of things that it really struggles to understand are going to be so obvious and easily accessible to the model when we give it voice. And then on top of that, you're just not going to type anymore. You're just going to talk to the machine because it's going to so level up voice interfaces when they do that. And that's another, I'm going to call it an obvious application. Like, it's not easy. It's going to take resources to do it. There's got to be people working on it right now. And when it rolls out, it's going to be shocking yeah. in the same way ChatGPT was. Yeah, yeah I, I, I think it's going to shock a lot of people because I was driving in the car yesterday with my wife. I'm like, um, I forget what, what the conversation, we're talking about AI almost every day. <laughs> like, but we're, I'm saying like, say, I was saying something like, oh yeah, it's going to be a while before, you know, robots, you know, take over the job of an electrician or a plumber or, you know, um, they're, it's, it's harder. But then I'm like, yeah, just like, you know, it's going to be a while. Gonna, oh, we're talking about how some AI experts are saying AGI is, gonna, is decades away still. And some of the most renowned AI experts are saying it's still decades away. I'm like, it could be partially definition where they think AGI is not just smarter in most tasks, but smarter like in almost every task, including physical tasks. If you have that type of definition, maybe you're you're still thinking you know decades away. So I was like, yeah, you know, maybe there's a there's a lining of truth that, yeah, for humans, for a robot or AI to be smarter than a human in terms of how to do some complicated physical you know, skill, yeah, sure, maybe we are a while away. And, I'm, and then my next thought was like, yeah, just like, you know, we're talking next to each other, just like it's going to be a while before AI is going to be able to do all of the nuances of the voice where you can't tell it's, a, it's an AI. You know, humans have so much more expression in their voice. I mean, just like it's going to take a while. Then I, I listen to myself. I'm like, wait a minute. Maybe it's not going to take a while because once they've got the data... Yeah, you know, once they got the data, it's just going to be like so fast. They're going to pick up all of the nuances, the volume, the intonation, all that meaning. Where before we know it, like AI is going to be able to speak in a way we can't tell it's an AI. But that's going to shock a lot of people because right now, voice of a computer or voice of AI is just this monotone. It's just like blah, 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 blah. you know, it's, it doesn't have that. Like people building models out there that mimic humans and are essentially indistinguishable from human beings. I, mean, I haven't found something that's really like I can't tell the difference. It's still like you know I could noticeably tell, but I think that's gonna it's gonna shock a lot of people when you hear something, and you're, not just when you hear something, when you converse with something that doesn't have latency, that that it, you can't tell the difference, and you're doing a thirty minute conversation, and you're just like that's gonna freak out. And uh, the whole you know doing a avatar and so there's a face you look at on your computer and it's got expressions and all that kind of stuff like you know that's coming along great it's that'll probably come a little bit later but just because it's more hardware resource intensive right so running it on consumer stuff will take a little bit longer but the you know the capability to do that is it's it's doing great yeah this yeah boy it's it's just nutty i I like i 
I have spent yeah. so much time laying, staring at the ceiling in the middle of the night yeah. lately thinking about this. A funny story. So I'm showing my, one of the things I do is I show my kids all the stuff that I'm doing, but also, so I'm creating a lot of um, like language learning content. And, um, and I'm really like GPT 3.5, it couldn't do what I needed it to do exactly. Like I would have to run things like 10 times to get one thing I really liked. Um, but GPT 4 is like eight or nine out of 10 times it's getting it. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is like, I could tell how big of a step up based upon how much it could do what I'm pushing it to do. But I'm showing my kids all this stuff, but along the way, so they're seeing the changes too. And I'm showing my kids also like images like Midjourney and other things. And so they're seeing all the versions and how it's improving. And I'm introducing like multimodal, like, you know, what GPT-4 is going to be able to do and all this stuff. And my eight-year-old is so funny. He like, he just intuitively gets some stuff where he's like, um, he, he, he kind of knows what companies, he, he connects the dots and he, he's like, oh, that means this company or this company is going to go, going to go bankrupt. <laughs> you know? So we have these apps on our phone where we're able to like take a picture of a plant or a flower and it tells us the flower, the plant, but oftentimes it's wrong. It's not the, the greatest thing, but sometimes it's right and we like it. And I was using the app and he's like, that's going to go bankrupt. <laughs> that's going to go bankrupt. I'm like, I'm thinking about it, I'm like, Oh yeah, it will go bankrupt just because when you stick an LLM, like you stick a multimodal like language model and you give it a picture, it's gonna tell it's gonna be so much more accurate than an old school whatever app that's trying to do all these things, you know, to determine yeah. what a plant is. You know, in the same way that a cell phone sort of you know, the cell phone absorbed all these devices into it and everybody's just got yeah. a cell phone. Like, you know, the, the I mean we keep talking about language models. These, the you know, these LLMs, you know, you get a multimodal LLM with a camera in, especially if it's got direct voice or something like that. It's just going to absorb a, whole, a plethora of separate applications that we do right now. Like, I'm fascinated by the possibility that you will just tell ChatGPT to do your taxes, right? <laughs> like, it's, you know, GPT-4, right? Like, here are the forms, <laughs> you know, you get your bank statement. I mean, it, you know, it's a little hyperbolic, the, the description, but... You know, I mean, taxes are a pain in the butt and they've been hard and there's no good reason for it, really. I mean, basic taxes for 99% of people should be really easy. And yet somehow it stayed complicated. And uh, so could an LLM like just do it? Yeah, sure. Like I, I can totally believe that, that, uh, you know, so to it going to go bankrupt, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah when, when you're talking about just um, how we're going to see a ton of, things happen in the next six, 12 months. Um, the project Auto GPT, have you heard of that? It's this project on GitHub. It has like 22,000 stars in a few weeks. Um, it's sim There's another project called Baby AGI, and there's a similar thing where you just basically loop GPT-4 and with also long-term memory. So you, you put, you get some vector database and you, and you just kind of loop it with some instructions. and Baby AGI, you create this task list first, and then you go through all the tasks, and and they're not like, they're not that uh, robust, or they're kind of buggy. Not only buggy, it just doesn't work completely that well. But it's the hottest project on GitHub, and it's it's in six months, 
people are going to figure out some crazy stuff, you know, just because it's such the, early days. Yeah. The, the concept is there and it's so fascinating to see this, like, and then you just run it, you loop it and you don't know what's going to happen because it's just looping, you know, itself. And, and it's like caution, caution, you know, you don't, we don't know what's going to happen if you don't watch it. You know? yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Funny. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, uh, Carpathy has been tweeting out this, all of these I- interesting things about, um, you know, how to think about LLMs as like a CPU, like the new CPU, um, these uh, like trying to reframe the way that we think about this stuff to sort of open our minds up to the possibilities. But yeah, it's like bolting other things onto LLMs is going to be. I, I it, it could be that six months from now, some other thing comes out of the woods and like we forget about LLMs because we're sort of like, that's a real possibility. It's so hard to believe. But, you know. You know, I was having a conversation with my sister yesterday, and I was talking about how how shocked I was when AlphaGo happened. I mean, I was just really stunned. Like, literally for a couple of days, I couldn't believe when 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 AlphaGo was happened. And then it just kept doubling down, doubling down. And then AlphaFold happened, and the protein folding problem. Like that was something I thought a lot about like 20 years ago. And so, like, I had a sense of like how momentous a problem this was, and how difficult a problem, how unbelievably difficult it was. And it's just like done. Right. And like it happened so fast. And and we're not, you know, we it's not, you know, a year, two, three years later, we're not stunned by it. The the world outside isn't because we keep getting these bigger and bigger and bigger shocks as the as the tech moves forward. So like, okay, what's what's the thing that's going to happen in six months that makes us totally forget about GPT-4? Right? Think about that. (laughs) Like, what would it take? It's like, oh, man, (laughs) just to put it in context. Right. I think one of the thing that shocks me about GPT 3.5 and 4 is like how much it can understand things. Um, There's some people like on Twitter who have this narrative. They're pushing that, oh, these LLMs, you know, GPT 4, whatever, even can't understand anything. It just spits out, you know. Stochastic parrot. Yeah, the next Mm -hmm. token or something. It doesn't know what it's it's talking about. But in my experience, it's um, what's shocking about it is there's certain things that it had it has to understand uh, um, to spit out an answer and the level of its understanding it's far from perfect um, but the level of its understanding it's it's just it blows me away sometimes sometimes I'm just like I'm so shocked. It seems like a simple problem initially it's just like tell me guess what the next token is but imagine that I'm asking that you know I give it the first four words of an essay that it has to finish and the essay is going to be you know three paragraphs long right so it's like well, you know, and you're you're about to start the next sentence, the you know first sentence of a first paragraph. So you, uh, so you're facing questions like, what are the concepts I I need to communicate? What's the best order to do those in? Of when I communicate a concept, what's the what you know what's the right way to word it? And then think about all the different ways that a sentence can be constructed to. I mean, because you can say the same thing like a hundred different ways right? A little longer, a little shorter. It's got all these nuances and that kind of stuff for it. You got to figure out all that kind of stuff, right? And then, then you got to break it down to the, you know, the, the, the grammar that you want to use. And you've got to answer all that stuff to say, what's the first word of the first sentence of the next paragraph? Like you have to have already planned ahead, right? So to, to say what, what the likely next word, first word of the next paragraph is, we're basically telling the model, you have to figure out all this other stuff, the planning, the concepts, all the different ways they could be expressed, how to structure it, right, to be able to predict what the first word is. 
right? Like all that has to happen. Like that's happening in our heads. It's it's uh, and in fact, it's a reason why a lot of people think that language is you know in human beings plays a really important role in our intelligence, the intelligence that we bring to bear in the world, because it adds so many tools and it requires so much sort of, it requires you to develop so much sophistication just to be able to use language. Well, now we've done this with computers, right? And on the one hand, people are like, oh, it's just giving you a probability table for the next word, right? And on the other hand, well, for those probabilities to be right, it has to know a lot about the world. And 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 it's that a lot about the world that we're now learning to tap into. Like we've got the we figured out how to get the models to do that, which is itself is a stunning accomplishment. And at GPT-3, they had that. And with Chat GPT-3, what we saw was now, now we got to get it out. <laughs> we got to get it to give it back to us when we ask for it. And that was really hard. But they figured out how to do that with Chat GPT-3. And then with GPT-4, they just doubled down. They went really big. I mean, that, that's a way of thinking about what's going on. But all of those dimensions are just going to keep getting better. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like the whole narrative where, oh, these LLMs are just parrots. They're just regurgitating whatever they've they've copied on from the internet, right? It misses the the point of like I think it's this misunderstanding of how these LLMs are trained. Like they think the training with you know transformers is the way it's actually that's the whole picture. That's all it's doing, and it's just repeating it out, right? And it misses I think this kind of this emergent behavior that that is probably in my opinion the most notable thing about these LLMs in the past, let's say, six to 12 months is the emergent behavior of the, the under of the understanding of the world and understanding of what you're saying and what you're trying to accomplish and all of that, that it's gathered, it's, it's emerged from all of its data, you know, and its training. That to me is the most fascinating part of it. And it's giving this different life to, to, to these AI models, whereas before you just had, sure, you, you know, tr translate, Google Translate and different things, spinning out things, but it didn't have that understanding. Um, and so, yeah, GPT-3 or 3.5 was was huge, right? C combining Instruct, GPT, and all this chat interface. But now you have GPT-4, which bumps up the understanding even more. And now it's like, is OpenAI standing still? Are they just like, you know, saying, oh, let's rest on GPT-4? No, they're pushing forward their next, you know, well, we don't iterations. Know what yeah. yeah, we don't know, but obviously they're... Yeah. They're still spending something. money. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're still hiring people. <laughs> yeah, so it's just these, this understanding that AI has will just grow um, immensely. We don't know exactly how fast or what, but that to me is is the most shocking thing right now of how fast the understanding has grown and all of the capabilities are following that understanding. I think that's what's shocking about it, right? Yeah. It's uh, like the technology itself, the it like the the improvement curve is actually really quite smooth. Like there there aren't a lot of like core I mean, you know, inside the field there's these constant stream of micro surprises and every once in a while you get a big surprise. Like ChatGPT3, I think it was a big surprise for a lot of for a lot of people because it, you know, it was a discontinuous step against the state of the art for you know, being able to make good use of an LLM. Um, but, you know, inside the field, you shouldn't be. But but externally, what happens is the technology eventually, it crosses these thresholds where suddenly it becomes, it goes from like not useful for something to useful for something. And that feels like a big step, right? And yeah, it's uh, crazy. Time. I think what happened was the, this, the understanding of these LLMs just like it crossed a point 
and it imp- it's growing so fast where it became useful in, in so many things and it's becoming more useful. And that's kind of like the, you know, wake up kind of moment for people. Um, yeah. Um, it's also interesting to me that, that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels like AI, the people making these models, et cetera, they, they understand like what goes into making a model and pulling the data and, you know, creating, you know, all the, the parameters, all that stuff. But they don't really understand how the, mo- how the, the AI, the LLM, is like creating that understanding of the world and how it's creating, let's say, whatever it's generating, like the, the, it's, it's, it's a little bit unknown. It's a mystery box in a sense. And they call it emergent because they don't understand it. It's like, it's, it, it's, a, it's kind of like this, um, I don't want to say it's a secret power, but these AI models are, are, are in a way, um, they're their own box of just stuff that's happening. We don't that, fully that understand. That kind of gets overplayed a little bit, the, the idea that, that the people building them don't understand anything about them. It's, like it's certainly the case that uh, we don't understand them perfectly. Uh, we understand a lot about what's going on inside the models. I, unlike the human brain, um, you can deeply inspect. And, and inspecting is, it's not like, you know, in a piece of computer code, you know, everything is a switch, like control flows through it and everything is kind of atomic and whatnot. Like, uh, you know, what's happening inside a large language model and all the weights, you have to take a whole lot of weights into account to sort of understand some particular things. So the way that you go about breaking down what it's doing is different. And attacking it in a completely reductionist way, you know, finding the one neuron that does the trick, like that's rarely going to be the way you understand some aspect of its behavior. But there are a lot of things that can be understood because they are they're transparent to us in the sense that you can deeply inspect everything going on inside the model, as it were. Like as a user, you don't see what's going on, but the people developing the models, they can look inside these models, and 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 people are. They're dissecting these things. You know, they do keep surprising their creators. You know, you get you get it. That's and that's what the emergent thing is. The emergent thing is, wow, that came out of nowhere. Like it's emergent behavior is where you have. You have the model's terrible, the model's terrible, the model's terrible, the model's terrible. And then you get this change, typically scaling. That's what, mainly what we talk about. You get to a certain size and boom, all of a sudden, it can do it. And that's what zero shot was with GPT-3. The zero shot learning was like, not there, not there, not there, not there, not there. Boom, pretty good. Like it just like, it went from like the indistinguishable from random to pretty good. And like, once you cross a certain threshold, so you, that, you know, and they're like, there are 137 documented <laughs> emergent properties. I think I saw a list uh, the other day of uh, that we've seen in language models so far, like some capability that it just didn't have, and you got to a certain scale, and all of a sudden it could do it. Uh, so emer- that emergence is we didn't see it coming as we were scaling the model up, so we're surprised. Uh, but people will say, why did this start working, right? Like if we didn't know anything about models, we'd have no clue. It's just, oh, let's just keep making it bigger, feed it more data. And that's really not the world that we're in. In fact, a lot of the refinements that go into these models are, they're not just people trying stuff at random or even having a theory about why stuff is going on having kind of a directed search. There's a certain amount of that, which is going on for uh, definitely. But uh, there's there's also a component of researchers 
you know, they get a model, it does a particular thing, and then they take it apart. Why does it do this? They form a theory, they do some experiments or whatnot, and they kind of narrow it down. Like they got a decent idea about why it's doing something. And then they make further advances based on that. And depending on whether they're productive or unproductive, you get more support for your theory about this is what's going on inside the model. That That's kind of the level of understanding that we're getting. It's not zero. It's not total. Yeah. But like, you know, the the narrative that it's a total black box and we have no idea what's going on, that's just false. Yeah. I wouldn't say it's total black box, but it's more of um, there is there is some things, I bet, but, but a lot of things we don't know. It's surprising. You know, of what's what's happening, how it's forming, you know. It's... We, we, we don't have good theories of sort of information complexity and emergence in information itself. Um, and in fact, you know, it's very likely that these, that our tool for learning to understand that aspect of the world is going to be these models because you can build models that do and don't. Now you can examine this phenomenon, this phenomenon of like really complicated information pools and all the nuance and subtlety that's in there. We've got a machine now that can extract that and embed it, encapsulate it, capture it in its fabric and then give it back to us under the right stimulus. And that gives us a tool for trying to understand those aspects of the world, which we've never understood before. And I, you know, I think a, a thing that you could say about what's going on is, is the reason we've never understood intelligence is because intelligence is like an embodiment of the complexity of the world, like you capturing and using the complexity of the world to build models and to be able to make predictions. And, and we just haven't had, and we still don't have a good understanding of all the layers of complexity that exist in, in the world. I mean, backpropagation is a really simple, the, the, the fundamental mechanism of neural networks is really, really simple. They only get their complicated behavior because there's complexity embedded in the data we give them. They extract that complexity, right? It, they crystallize it, and then they can feed. They can use it to, like, you know, pursue the objective or that we're getting them, or you know, to reduce the loss function, which is what happens during training. So that, you know, we're learning a lot about the world through these things. We're going to learn a lot about how the human brain works by looking at how neural networks work because there's enough parallels. You know, it's. Uh, a lot of things about the way brains work have been really hard to, because the reductionist thing where, you know, let's put five neurons in a Petri dish and try to understand the whole brain. You know, it's, it's really got its limits if you can only look at a couple of things. The complexity comes from the interaction of, you know, literally billions of these things. And that's, it's just a fantastically large space of interactions that, that, that expresses properties it's just, I mean, you know, it's just, it's inconceivable how much stuff can be embedded in there. And we've never really had a window into it before. And we do now. Yeah. Um, so you talked about a bit about Google's PAW model, you know, navigating robots, um, planning. What do you think? Um, so when we look out five or 10 years in the future with these LLM, LLMs becoming multimodal, um, becoming increasingly powerful, do you think, so I had this thought earlier today, which was if you're competing against Tesla FSD, I think in the short term, in the next five years, Tesla has got all the infrastructure, all the data, um, huge part of it is latency. It got the hardware in the cars. It's just hard to catch, I think, Tesla in the next five years. But if you look out more longer term, and if you're trying to build an FSD competitor longer term, let's say in five to 10 year period, could you take kind of an LLM and build something on top of that 
let's say future LLM, you know, LLM, let's say GPT seven or eight or something, and build something on top of that that does full self driving, but uses the capabilities of LLM and the understanding that it has of the world, and could that? That's probably how the twenty forty high school students will be doing their science fair projects to show like how they can get their iPhone to drive their car. Right? Exactly. Could that? Could that type of company, if they do it well, could it be a competitor to Tesla? Um, how do you kind of you know think about that? The world, I like the world's going to change so much so fast when these techs start rolling out. Um, and I think, you know, one of the big limiters is just going to be how fast you can change physical reality, like building the factories, building the cars and getting them out there. That's going to be a constraint on how fast the tech can grow as it matures. So, you know, if you if you. This the thing to keep in mind, like there are a lot of cars on the road, there's like a billion cars out there, something like that. Right. And uh, like table stakes from changing the world with full self-driving is a million cars. Like that's where it starts. And we're so far from getting to there. What does the world like it look like at a million cars? Like when, when this industry really starts, like when we get to a million cars and we really start the industry, well, who's going to have a million cars? Well, like, you know, a, a couple of companies in China and Tesla, like, uh, that will have maybe have the capability to actually field a million cars um, that have the infrastructure. Like who else is working on that right now? Building, building a platform that can be, you know, cost effectively scaled to massive scale, like quickly. Um, at that point, like, you know, how many people will, how many code bases will be able to do it? Probably not that many. There, there will probably be a couple products, maybe only one. I mean, Tesla might be the only one. Or it might be that you've, I mean, the most likely thing is the market's bifurcated into, into you know, constrained things that run on expensive hardware and, you know, and can attack a certain subset of the market. I mean, if Tesla fulfills their ambition of building a completely general purpose one, there's a very good chance they'll be the first player to get to that spot right now largely because they've got the manufacturing capacity to get there. I mean, they've got a big head start on the technology also. But even if somebody else got up to there, you've they've got it you got to be able to build the fleet. Um, that's a big constraint on what the world looks like at that point. You go way down the world when there's 50 million, 100 million robo taxis. It like the end game is it's a commodity. Right? It the cars are cheap, you know, they cost 18, 20 cents a mile to operate them. They're just everywhere. You can get one in two minutes from almost any, you know, industrial place and in, industrialized places in, in the world. They're displacing maybe 50% of all the miles that get driven. Uh, what is Tesla's, you know, at, at that point, you know, it's still a good business. The margins won't be nearly as high. There'll probably be a number of significant players. It might be regional, you know, where you got a big player in the U.S., you got another big player in Europe. Maybe you'll have global players that 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 sort of dominate. I think that's kind of what the end game looks like, right? And I I don't think that you know realistically you get a scenario where like all the robo taxis in the world are Teslas. You know, if 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 Tesla ends up with a fleet of twenty percent of the robo taxis, they're doing pretty good. If you get to a point where you've got twenty percent of the robo taxis, you can probably hang on to that lead pretty easily because the you know, the barriers to entry are no longer just about the technology. There's a hundred other barriers that are going to prevent an incumbent from like ramping up and, 
and, and taking over because the technology at that point is commoditized. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. I mean, so you talk about this end game. Um, do you think, okay, a few questions here. So Tesla's approach so far has been, we don't need hypothetically these LLMs with emergent understanding, all this stuff. We could tackle it on this vision approach with kind of a more specialized um, um, approach to vision and the physical world and navigating and planning that physical world. And it's gotten Tesla to a certain point, which is very, very impressive, by far in the lead. And it always seems like Tesla is so getting closer and closer to that magical point, you know, where yeah. you could follow Zeno's in the self-driving car. Yeah. Yeah, right. But it just seems so. It just seems elusive, right? Um, and you know, there's some who still think we're still just so close. But then other times, like the car does certain things where it's just like, at times I'm just like, ah, oh, it's just when is that gonna get to that well, place? It's because right? you're looking at the way a human looks at the driving problem, the car sees it differently. Yeah, exactly. But the and the the whole bet with Tesla's approach is like, yeah, it'll be good enough. It'll be equal and better than a human with the approach it's taking, which I could see it working. But on another angle, if you could, if hypothetically, um, I guess the other angle would be, can LLMs be used somehow to kind of... Tesla is using LLMs in the cars now, right? They're, they're using GPTs to solve various aspects of the higher level function. It, the, okay, so when they started, LLMs weren't a thing. In fact, it ha, it's only, it wasn't until Transformers really took off, which was just a couple of years ago, that it became clear that you could use them for vision, that you could use them for these multimodal problems. I would argue that Transformers today, you know, the LLM architecture today is not the right way to go, you know, to build the whole stack. That the right way to use an LLM today, given what we understand about LLMs, is you still use essentially more conventional, say convolutional network-based, you know, front end on your on your camera processing. And you get it up to a set of abstractions about the environment. And then you throw bring your transformers in at that point. And that's basically what Tesla's doing. I mean, they had originally been going, you know, convolutional all the way to the top and then having heuristics on top of that and basically getting labels out of, you know, from they've been getting labels for the environment out and they, you know, put heuristic code on top of that. It looks it sounds from, you know, stuff Elon said recently, you know, they're starting to use neural networks in control and they're expecting to push neural networks all the way through the thing. But they've also talked, I mean, at at AI Day 2, they talked about this language of lanes thing, which is that's a GPT. You know, it's a language model that they're using to essentially capture, to essentially take this this lane connectivity problem, turn it into a sequence problem, and use a use a transformer to process that. Which I think is a great idea. Like it's a really clever idea for trying to use this stuff. There are lots of other, you know, sub elements of the of the overall driving problem that you could break out this way too. In in the near term, when we're uh, performance constrained and we're and we're we're kind of technology constrained because the field's only at a certain level of maturity. You know, like 100 years from now, there might be a really obvious fix to these things because the, we have this mature theory of how all this stuff works, but we don't have that right now. So, but it basic, based on the our empirical understanding of how this stuff works and the experience and that kind of stuff, I still think the way Tesla's doing it, like today, right now, if you were going to pick an architectural approach just today, even knowing what we know about LLMs and everything else, you'd still be doing what Tesla's doing. Like it's very likely, given the 
constraint of the amount of compute that you can put in the car, latencies you need to have and all that kind of stuff. The fact that you don't want to need a link to the internet and all that kind of stuff in order to operate. You really want the vehicle to be independent. It's still the right way to go. Could that change? It could totally change. We might learn something uh, about the problem that basically make it so that, you know, there's a whole lot of stuff that we were sort of painstakingly decomposing about the environment into little elements that you could abstract away with, you know, significantly less processing. Like, I'd be surprised if if someday we don't find that there are shortcuts to getting to, to the thing. But for now, the best bet is to do it the, the way Tesla's doing. Now, if you were come AI, <laughs> right, like you're going to go for the super ultra lightweight hardware thing, you might go a different way. And if you were a conventional robotaxi company, it's like, no, we'll spend 10 times as much on the car and we're willing to constrain the environment. You might pick something different. You know, in that situation, you might say, well, maybe we go more for LLMs, you know, in that in that situation. But given this, you know, the hardware constraints that that Tesla's got, the fact that the market they're going after, they're going after a mass market product, you know, the the hardware they put in the car to support FSD, it's a couple thousand dollars. It's not a hundred thousand dollars. You know, that lets them get access to a mass market. Like if that's a constraint for the way that you want to approach a problem, you know, I still strongly believe that the approach that they're taking right now is the right way to do it for that particular market. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it makes sense. There's so many constraints also with, with latency and compute, hardware, all this stuff. Um, Okay, so long term with with after let's say robotaxis is proliferated, there's it's easy to make a, a model, etc. Tesla moves more into humanoid robots. It's much more maybe um, general, more general, I guess in in application. Um, does Tesla need an like at that point? Do they just take their vision model and expand it, or? Do they add on uh, LLM, LLM to be the brains of the robot, combine something together? Do you think another idea is does Elon's new AI project, supposedly at Twitter, I think it's called Based AI, does that get put it combined together with what Tesla's doing in terms of vision AI? Like, wh how does this work out, you think, in 10 years or so? Oh, 10 years is infinitely far away <laughs> 10 years on the other side of the event horizon right now um <laughs> uh yeah no, it's like i can only predict like you know the direction i i only have a sense of the direction of the path you know forward from where we're at right now uh like <laughs> i used to think that like there were things about the world 25 years from now that i knew and then, like, at some point, it got to be, like, well, maybe 10. <laughs> and, like, a couple years ago, it was, like, maybe five, you know. And now I'm, like, oh, five is, like, way too far. Um, you know, Optimus, uh, a lot of the vision stack, a lot of the, you know, I think a lot of that you can take straight over to Optimus. I think when you get to the higher level stuff, that's, you know, the LLM part, the GPTs that are basically taking the more abstract stuff and making decisions about it. Those are probably different for Optimus because his form factor is different. His constraints are different. He's not worried about speed. He's got a much more com complex environment that he's got to move. He's got a much more complex set of choices about how he can go about doing any particular task relative to the car. So I think that once you get beyond the we've got decent perception, like everything above that for the robot is just quite a bit different. Today, that's a minor, minor, it's a minor component of all the stuff going on in the car. It's a really important component. 
like it might matter more to the overall experience, assuming that you've got a certain minimum level of functionality in the perception stack. It might matter more than you know making the perceptions even better. Um, so it's it's really important to get that uh, and to continue improving on that kind of stuff. And it's probably you know the greatest point of innovation in the FSD stack right now is adding more GPTs, refining them, figuring out how to use them well, figuring out if you can consolidate them. Now that they've got single stack and they've got most of the legacy stuff out of there. And then on top of that, you know, they can continue improving the tools that let them get more, squeeze more and more capability out of uh, what they put in the car. You know, having your own compilers, having your own, uh, there's all kinds of analysis and uh, quantization work and compression work and distillation work that you can do to just make more and more fit in the car. As as those tools get better, they apply to everything. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's like um, Elon tweeted something about um, diffusion seems to be more compute efficient than transformers yeah, for vision. <laughs> it's interesting also at the investors investor day afterwards, a shock was taking just people around him and other execs. But um, I asked him about LLMs and he was saying something basically about they're finding more success or it's more uh, diff diffusion is more interesting actually than transformers to them. Why do you think that might be the case? So, I mean, the, the formulation of using diffusion that I'm most familiar with is like stable diffusion, right? It's like um, diffusion is, uh, is you know, it's essentially using the patterns in the world to see patterns in noise. You start with noise, like you, and then you stepwise, you know, get to a pattern from that. Uh, I haven't, I need to, you know, that, that, tweet from Elon made me think that I need to go back and look at how people are using diffusion outside of vision models. A simple way to use diffusion in vision models is like, you know, with the nerfs is similar to the nurse thing is like, if you use it at the tail end, so right now it's hard to close the loop on training a vision model because you got pictures in and labels out. And so if you want to train it, you got to go, you got to have to have picture label pairs, right? And that's what human labelers do, right? If you can get picture in, picture out, so like you convert it to the internal abstracted representation you need to drive the vehicle, and then you have a back end that converts that back into picture, now you can close the loop just with lots of pictures. I mean, you literally just go collect tons of data, and you, ha you have the model learn to predict the world in terms of a set of abstractions that you know are useful for driving. And so you train those abstractions up, and you get them, and they get really, really good. That, this is kind of like how the language model thing works. It's self-supervised. You got tons of text. That's all you need. Nobody has to label the text. You just give it enough text, and it learns the it it learns the information structure embedded in a large corpus of text, which includes a certain perspective, everything in the world, right? So, you'd really like to be able to do that with vision for robots that operate in the real world, so that they develop an understanding of physics, objects, the way that light works, a whole range of possible you know, phenomena that can occur in the world, what's likely and not, you know, given the constraints of the world and so on. Uh, so diffusion can be a way to do the second half of that, like at a minimum, we can do that. There's a show talked at AI Day 2 about how to use nerfs to do that, which is also a way to go from, to, to get to a picture from, uh, but it may be that diffusion is much more computationally efficient way to get the picture out. And so my first cut is that's, that's a, might be what, he's talking about although the way that they worded the way ashok just worded that and the way that elon worded it kind of implies that there's some other stuff going on there too that they've 
because there are other, you know, diffusion is a general principle. It, it doesn't necessarily apply just to pictures. You can apply it to, you can use diffusion in language models, for instance, with text and that kind of stuff. Uh, it hasn't been as successful there, but um, there might be, it, maybe it would be successful if people spent more time on it. And it might be that there are other sort of representations of, you know, internal representations to work from where diffusion is good. Like, you know, for instance, the uh, occupancy map. It might be that generating an occupancy map using diffusion is actually a really effective way to get an occupancy map built. Mm -hmm. Got it. All right. So going back to FSD version 11. So where are we in the bigger picture with FSD? Like what does version 11 kind of provide? What are the big kind of step forwards and what's also remaining you know, before, what, what, what are the big kind of things to, it needs to work on still? Yeah, we probably don't have enough time now to like really get into it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we have, um, actually we have about 15, 20 minutes. Um, I've been super happy with it because I've seen, I've seen a number of kind of core capabilities manifest that weren't present before that have led to significantly improved be uh, behavior. And the way that I sort of broadly characterize this in my head is that the, um, is it previously, like when you were on the highway, it, this is most apparent on the highway because if you've been driving AP, AP for a while, you, you know that AP has this kind of sort of robotic aspect of the way that it does stuff. Like once it decides to do a lane change, that turn signal is going to stay on until it completes the lane change. Like it doesn't retract that. Like it's sort of in this mode where, you know, it's got, you know, vehicles in lanes uh, and it evaluates the situation and you know, base it and then use heuristics to make a decision about what it should do. And then, it, you know, and then it decides it's going to do that. And so now you're in a flow chart and, you know, the flow chart, the state machine has decided we're going to move from this state to this state. And, uh, and it waits for that transition to complete. And that's, so that's why you're stuck there in the lane with your turn signal going on and no place to move over because the guy didn't let you in when your car turned on the turn signal, right? And you just wait for it to go. When you do lane changes, it's like evaluate the situation, wait five seconds, check it again, make sure everything's okay because you're not confident of the perception model. So you check and check and check and check. And then uh, now, you know, we move over to the second lane. Now we reevaluate, Did you know, or is there a car in front of us, behind us? Is the situation the same as before we did it? Yeah, and you accelerate, decelerate. So you get the super clunky thing like come up to the truck, you have to stop, check around. Decide you're going to make a lane change, turn on the turn signal, check again, move over, check again, can I move forward? Then you start to accelerate. You know, it's very clunky, sort of stepwise stuff. And it's a, it's, this is in kind of a, uh, a, it's a side effect of the fact that you're not super confident about the perception. So you want to stack up a lot of evaluations to be really confident about things before you make decisions. And when you make decisions, because the decisions are getting made in this flow chart, this tree, you don't want the flow chart to get too complicated. So you don't want to have like intermediate states on all of your states. You want to have a state, have another state. So you get that kind of thing. But there are other ways of, ref of reframing the problem overall. Like the way a human might think about the thing is, I'm going to do my lane change and I'm going to abort my lane change or change my plan if the path, if my path through the world, if things in the world change to make me think something's going to intersect my path, then I reevaluate. And FSD 11, especially on the highway, it feels like it's doing that now. So when you look at the path planner, right? The path planner, it used to be just like, you know, change lanes, and that was it. You know, it would have a single maneuver, and it would have some horizon that you could see. And inside that horizon, it would plan a single maneuver. If it completed that maneuver, then it would think about the next thing, where a maneuver was move laterally, move, accelerate, decelerate, whatever. Now you see it planning a path through the world, 
that includes multiple maneuvers. So it can do double lane changes or triple lane changes. It can do interactions with multiple cars on a highway where there's a car gaining on you and you're catch you're gaining on another car and then you change lanes and he changes lanes and the guy's still coming up on you and the car decides to abort. You know, it'll turn on its lane the turn signal for a second to do something, decide it can't do the maneuver, turn the turn signal off. It like immediately reevaluates. So it's continuously doing these plotting these paths through the world. And the thing we don't see is it's plotting those for all the other actors too. So we see our little blue and tentacle coming out of the car, but internally it's generating those little and tentacles for all the other cars too. And it's looking for where they cross, right? And if they don't cross, the plan is still okay. And I can still keep doing that. And in the moment that it gets an evaluation where it gets across, ah, it reevaluates now. And it can immediately make a decision to change. And that's made, it's a different way of reframing the whole driving problem. Now, I think it's probably not the case that they actually did throw away their entire previous approach. It's probably the case, more likely the case, that they've had this in there and they've been gradually moving from one way of structuring it to another. And the single stack was a way, was a, was an, you know, going to single stack, especially on the highway, was an opportunity to take all of these boxes and guardrails and fine-tuned rules that we had sitting on top of the previous perceptions, toss those out, build a new set based on this new sort of paradigm of paths through the world and whether they intersect or not. So, so the first thing that happens is you throw all the rules out, right? And you know you build the system, you get it out on a few employee cars, and then you start adding rules because now you need a new set of rules because the paradigm, because perception still isn't perfect, right? It's still got holes in it. It might be better, might be better and might be really significantly better, but there are going to be situations where it doesn't work. So you got to put the guardrails on. You have to, you have to like get it out in the real world, see the situations where it's coming up short. And then you have to either decide we're going to fix that perception problem or we're going to put a guardrail on or we're going to change the behavior so that the likelihood of recurring comes way down. So then, so now we're, now we're getting, you know, 3.1, 3.2, 3.3, 3.5, you've got some pretty ugly failure modes. You threw out all the guardrails and people, you know, we've had guardrails on AP for so long and FSD for so long. We've forgotten how ugly it can be when you take all the guardrails off. Like it was pretty ugly when, you know, each time we get a big step change, you get a lot of ugly behavior because you don't want to have guardrails on there that you don't need. But when, once you change the perception and the planning stack and that kind of stuff, the only way you know if you need the guardrails, take it off, run the cars for a while, right? And then so you find the new ones that you get. And I feel like we're in that kind of state right now. But at the end of this, you know, you know my guess is we're going to get a few more point revs and they're going to fill the really ugly failures that where stop sign, running stop signs or running signals are getting way too close to cars or making, you know, short term decisions that turn out to be bad. Um, and, uh, you know, and so we'll have all the smoothness that we're getting, but without the, 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 you know, the ugly failures. And there probably are behaviors where you start with the guardrail and then you gradually tune it back. Like if there are certain failure modes you're too worried about to give it to people right away, you know, there, there will be some kinds of behaviors where, you know, they know it's got this capability, but they have it turned off or they have it turned down to 0 0.1 right, to just see how it's doing. And then as it's in the real world and they're more confident that it can do this thing that they want it to do and it's going to be okay, 0 0.2, 0 0.3, 0 0.4. So gradually we see the fruition of these, uh, of, you know, what what the new perception capabilities bring to. And, and of course, now these are, I mean, plot, the paths through the world is, is in order to make that trick work, you have to be able to search down the possibility tree for all of the actors in the space. And that's combinatorically horrible. 
Like it really takes a lot of compute. So they've started using neural networks so that instead of searching the whole tree, they just search the most likely branches. They have a neural network look at the situation and say, well, the pedestrian could step out, they could step backwards, they could stop moving, they could run, they could, instead of looking at 100 things, you have a, a neural network looks at the pedestrian and says, you know, of the top three likely things that we need to be concerned with, these are the three to examine. So you get a couple of possibilities for each agent. You trace those forward in time. You get a, you get a probabilistic distribution of future paths, and then you look to see if any of them are a problem and you need to change your plan. So it's a pretty significant fundamental change. And that's, I'm, I'm happy that, that they got it. Does this by itself get us like through all of the problems that we know about right now? It might, you know, it's, I mean, we're going to have to see Tesla themselves. They probably don't know. This is one of those things you put it out in the world and you try it and the world throws ugly things at you. I think we're going to get, you know, we're going to get some more nines out of this for sure. Will there be a V12? Yeah, I think probably. Uh, just, you know, kind of looking at the schedule. But, man, I'm, I'm super, like, it feels like a really significant improvement to me. It's, there are ugly things right now. Like, this is probably the most dangerous time for V11 because, yeah. Yeah, yeah. My experience is, because I've had it since, like, for a while from, I think, like, 11.3.3 or something from, um, and I immediately I'm like, whoa, this is like a big jump in terms of like smoothness, also capability. I think what you're talking about is exactly what gives you more confidence is it's planning, you know, more complex things, taking in consideration more things around. And I'm like, I don't want to go back because I, I have a, my Model 3 has the newest version. It's had it for like almost a month and the Model Y we have has is more on a regular schedule. So I'm like, I don't want to go back to pre, you know, 11 point whatever, three. Um, it was that much of a big upgrade, but then there are these occasional things it does where I'm like, whoa, because I'm going on a road and it tries to take a left turn when it, there's like, there's no reason to take a left, you know, it's just like navigation, everything's going right. And it, it just, I have to be extra careful. And I guess it makes sense. I, I liked your explanation because it's like, yeah, if the guardrails are taking it off and they're having to put more new roles into the system, then I think you do have to, you know, be uh, vigilant in terms of how you're driving. You always have to be vigilant, but I think version 11.3, whatever, six now, it's like it could trick you into thinking it's so much better, but it still it has its blind spots that it needs to work on. But yeah, it's a great... Most well... So, you know, we've just gone to that transition where it got good enough that they're like, now let's give it to 400,000 people, <laughs> right? Yeah, so yeah. you've got this step up in risk because, you know, but on that one step, maybe it got a little bit better, but, you know, they're, they're getting a thousand times as much feedback now. So they're, that, that feedback loop is a thousand times richer and denser and faster than it was before. So they've got to the point where they can use the fleet and they feel like it's safe enough that they can give it to people, but iterate, 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 iterate. So we're getting an update a week right now. And it's probably the case that as long as we keep getting an update a week, they've got stuff that they know that they can make better and that they need to make better, right? Because they want to keep pushing those things out. I mean, I like the new um, voice feedback from, like, it just, um, I would imagine that's super, that's very helpful. Um, just because, I mean, before you, you're taking interventions and it, it, that's helpful, but it just maybe prioritizes, you know, these voice ones. Yeah, so exactly. they transcribe those into text or whatnot, 
and when they, you know, imagine that, uh, you know, they've got this endless list of interventions to kind of look at, but they look at clusters of interventions, right? They have different ways of sorting the thing. And they look at like, they could be clustered in the situation. They could be clustered just in a location. Like we're getting tons of, of like, this is the simplest way to think of it. We get interventions every single time a Tesla goes in this road, right at this point, right? Like you could start out by just looking for those, right? So you find all the ones that you get that kind of stuff. Then, then what you do is you, you, you take the textual reports that came with the ones that got textual report. You do a K-means clustering of them, and you look at which cluster is the biggest, right? And then, okay, what's common among all these ones that was the same? You know, you get these, not these noted things. People, that, I think, you know, I'm sure that some of these things get individually reviewed by, but, I, but the game that they're playing right now is mostly statistical. So they've got a big database of interventions. They want a big database of information. The more interventions you get, the richer stuff you have to work with, and the more you can find the real value in it. Focus your engineering resources on re resolving those, right? Just, you know, go down the list of the ones that are, that are both frequent and serious for some combination of frequent and serious. And then you, you gradually work your way down to the less frequent, less serious ones. Yeah, yeah I mean, I would imagine that the voice, you know, uh, explanation interventions have a higher priority in the sense that, let's say, you have ten thousand reported or something or like a day, um, you can't get through all of them, but you can, as you're saying, like match a group. Perhaps there's a, a large grouping of um, similar interventions happening, right? And they can figure that out, and then you're going through that, um, but. Because there is it's a signal when a person is explaining it. Like it's very it's important. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that you get out of the signal explaining it thing is like if you get if you're getting inter if if the interventions are distributed like they have a common theme to them, but it's not an easy one to like mine the data for. Like people interventions at intersections are super gonna are gonna be super common, and there's a zillion different reasons for them, right? But like maybe you have classes of intersections that are kind of popping up in your, you know, you do a histogram in some dimension of the interventions that you're getting. And now you look at the high frequency ones. Now you can filter on keywords or something that, you know, for what the reports were. And you can see if you see ran red light, <laughs> you know, like, okay, we're going to, it might be happening at lots of different intersections. But you can, you can look at all of those. You can see what the common elements are. You can take the recordings. You can look at what was going on inside the thing. And you can pretty rapidly drill down on, okay, do we need a guardrail? Do we need some more training? Do we need a different rule? Is this a bug in an existing guardrail? Like, like the bugs in the existing guardrails, they're probably going to be a lot of those and finding those. Like you get a whole lot of improvement for almost for free when you find a bug because you fix the bug, right? And it's just all upside. Now, the, the, you, you had an intention for how you built the program. It's not performing that way because you made a mistake in your implementation. Fix that. It's win-win. Exactly. We're out of our two-hour time. Our time in this uh, podcast studio is over. But I, I did have a lot of questions on um, your thoughts on uh, AGI. Like, how close are we? What's you know your, your doomerism, or not just not just doomers, but yeah. First, on just how how close we are to so-called whatever you define AGI as, but and also on kind of you know the six-month moratorium idea that Elon was promoting but AI safety in general, mm -hmm. also the future implications of AI, meaning how it's going to impact different you know, parts of society. But that's you know, not going to be possible right now. But it seems like we're in a, in a very like a hyper 
you know, impactful, changing like world of AI right now. And drama, yeah, drama. Yeah, the people inside the space are like they're being drama to death, and they're complaining loudly about it. Yeah. Um, but and the the thing that I think maybe illustrates it interesting interesting illustration is Karpathy had a blog post like almost 10 years ago where he had a picture of Obama mm -hmm. pressing his foot against the scale where the person on the scale didn't know that he was pressing and all the people around him were, were laughing and Karpathy's blog was basically you know can AI ever when will AI be I able think, to solve yeah, this he was demoralized and, at how far away exactly, it seemed to be exa right? exactly and that that type of that picture is a, is a in a sense, a, a type of milestone of AI being able to understand. Explain the joke. That, yeah, this a, a very complex situation, including humor and a lot of nuance. Can like when will AI be able to do that? And what's interesting, I think, with GPT four and becoming multimodal and explaining. And the thing is, they haven't really publicly shown much of it. But my guess is, it can explain pretty, you know. Complex I, pictures. I, I think it it does the explanation because he he commented on it. I tried to get him to 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 uh, like I replied to the comment and tried to get a response to him, but he didn't respond to me. But uh, I think it, the the follow up seems to be. It explains it, but we don't know if it can explain it because it's in the training corpus. Like maybe uh, it's seen it. the joke. Uh, and maybe it saw some place where somebody explained it, and he said they were looking, but they hadn't found it in there. Yeah, it's it's an interesting point because. Whether or not GPT-4 fully explains that joke or not right now, it's... It's well, doing it's similar. It's, it's around that that vicinity of being able to do that, which marks a huge milestone in terms of the capabilities of AI to to be at a closer point of human understanding of the world and reasoning. And we obviously, I mean, you know, it's, it's... I'm not going to say that, you know, GPT-4 has, you know, eclipsed human, but it's just, it's... AI is is just progressing so fast, and I think it's an interesting point of history where you know, we AGI are. AGI could be the next FSD, like in terms of our actual experience of it. Yeah. Uh, FSD, like getting a car to drive itself, is a hard problem, and it's taken a lot longer than people thought it would. And AGI may well turn out to be similar to that, right? Where we're like we keep getting these giant leaps, but at every giant leap, we're like, there's still something missing. And then you drill down and you're like, oh, yeah, there's this thing. Now, if we solve that problem, we'd have it. And then you get that one and you're like, still not quite right. <laughs> you know? Well, yeah, I'm thinking actually that process could take quite a while. Um, or yeah. it might not. You know, it could be one more and then we're done. That That's one of the, that's why you get this big uh, sort of this sort of bifurcation of opinions in the space, right? There are people who fear it's we're getting close to one and done. And there are, but there are people who've been in the field for a really long time who they, they've seen the process and they've seen so many breakthroughs and are like, oh, come on. I've heard this so many times. Right. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Uh, James, thanks for yeah, chatting again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I would love to do it again. Uh, yeah. I don't know when I'll be able to. Um, I'm headed on this long summer trip for four or five months around the world. Um, but yeah, we'll see. I'm, Four or five months is like an eternity. Yeah, it is. <laughs> you know, See you on the other back. side. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Crazy stuff. All right. Thanks a lot. And thanks, everyone, for tuning in.